Hello! I'm back. Episode number 61 of Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod. This week, my guest is Murray Chalmers, who um, has worked in the music industry um, for over 30 years. And, I mean, his, his back catalogue of artists that he's worked with is ridiculous. I think is the only way I can describe it. Um, he, in the podcast, he talks about Pet Shop Boys, Yoko Ono, Coldplay, um, but I mean, he's worked with so many amazing people. And I think I suppose you think of PR as a profession, and there's an air of a sort of arrogance and bravado about it. I suppose that's the, the sort of stereotype. And Murray just doesn't seem to have any of that. Um, and we sort of go into that as well, and you know, why he thinks that um, he's been so successful, and he's sort of um, crafted this career for himself in the music industry, which he sort of thinks he he chanced upon and got lucky upon. I'm I'm not entirely convinced. I think um, there's a lot of hard work and a lot of skill and a lot of craft, and the, the sort of relationships he built and the the work that he did. I mean, in the early days, right through, um, and we go all the way through that journey from him starting out in Lockheed um, to engaging in this sort of punk subculture, and then that pulling him down to London, and then living in squats, and then getting into um, uh, a bunch of uh, opportunities in the music industry, and then eventually to EMI, and then setting up his own business. And it's yeah, it's a fascinating. A star-studded uh, journey, but I think what's what's particularly interesting is his story about why he's coming back and why he's coming back to Dundee right now, um, and how he sees the city as someone. Um, I mean, he's come been going up and down for quite a while, but um, having made that decision to come here and actually work and uh, create an arm of his company um, in uh, <clears throat> collaboration with Jenny Patterson. So we we cover all that on the podcast. Um, before we get into the episode, uh, I just want to have a little mention for last week. It, um, the episode with Richard Cook was so well received. I think the the number of listens is, is completely ridiculous. It's the most listened episode um, by far. I think it was the most listened by two days in, and I think I mean it's a fantastic episode. Richard's really open and honest, and we get into some brilliant topics, including that of. Um, mental and physical health and the sort of the, the, the triumph of um, Dundee's creative community and pulling them through a dark time and Petra Kucha and everything else and I think it's um, yeah it, it's it's a fantastic representation of the great things that are happening here already and how um, we're really encouraging that, that talent to flourish um, even though we may be going through particular dark times uh, Another thing I wanted to talk about, um, if you're in Dundee on Friday, um, that being the 11th of May, come and say hello. Um, as I've mentioned a couple of times in the podcast, myself and Lyle Bruce are opening a new design studio uh, called Agency of None. And we are having a launch day, an open day where you can come along, say hello, have a nosy around the studio. Um, it's on from 8 in the morning till around about 10 at night. And we're going to put some coffee on in the morning, uh, some food on at lunchtime and a couple of beers on um, at night, sort of five o'clock onwards. So, yeah, come in, 
say hello if you're in Dundee. Um, if you can't make it on Friday, then yeah, just pop in, pop your head round. Um, we are based at it's 143C Nethergate. So if you know the Perth Road, um, sort of across the road from DCA, uh, if you know where Tonic is, it's a little alleyway just down the side of Tonic, and we're just up there. You, you're able to see our sign from Perth Road. Um, yeah, so come and see us, Agency of None. Um, and if you follow us on Twitter or Instagram, it's at Agency of None, and you can find out everything that's happening. Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll be putting out a lot more um, interesting things and updates um, about a few things that are coming um, in the near future, which are quite exciting. Yeah, let's um, let's dive into the episode. Um, so this is episode number 61, and this is with Murray Chalmers. Um, well, I, I was born in Dunkeld in 1959, and I lived in Dunkeld for... Uh, five and a half years. Uh, it was a very idyllic existence. Um, my dad ran an ironmonger shop, which is still there actually, on the main street in Dunkeld, and we lived above the shop. Uh, and then my mum and dad split up, and my mum and I moved to uh, Dundee, uh, Lockie in particular. And we moved to Lockie because um, we'd nowhere to go, you know, because she left my dad very quickly. And um, we turned up at my granny's house in Lockheed and said, here we are. And we ended up living in uh, Clement Park with my auntie. And so I then went to school in Lockheed. <clears throat> and eventually, you know, we um, we had this grotty little flat that had to be fumigated before we moved in. It was so infested with stuff. So, you know, it was very uh, poor existence, but, you know, it was uh, quite liberating to be in somewhere bigger than Dunkeld. Uh, quite scary as well, because I was quite young. And uh, then eventually, um, you know, we lived in Dundee for quite a while. And I went to Harris Academy, which is now knocked down to the shame of Dundee. Um, but I went there, and that's really when my life started to take shape. <clears throat> because, mainly because... Uh, I grew to love music, and I looked very freaky. Uh, and Do you want to elaborate on looking well, I, I was very androgynous. Um, I mean, this was, uh, thankfully, the 70s, when it was actually uh, probably anywhere else other than Dundee. It was, it was very fashionable. But here, um, it, it sort of made you... To look awkward, to look weird in Dundee at the time wasn't easy. Um, I mean, obviously, real not easy is having no money and bringing up kids with no money. But in terms of day-to-day -day life and, and getting on with your life as an adolescent, um, it wasn't very easy. But actually, it didn't bother me, and I actually grew to like it. Because it, <clears throat> it happened in tandem with my love of music. And really that was the, you know, the classics that everybody my age liked, which is David Bowie, Roxy Music, and T-Rex. Uh, <clears throat> and they, they kind of shaped everything, the way that I th thought about things and the way that I still think about things a lot. Uh, so the fact that I looked, even at school, quite strange, uh, I embraced rather than hated. And Although I don't think I look strange now, I think I look, you know, very uh, average. Um, that did shake me, just being at school, and uh, you know, I looked, I looked very androgynous, and uh, I guess it helped me decide if I wanted to be friends with uh, 
the big mass of people or the freaks. And I chose the freaks. <laughs> um, you know, we used to... Uh, like one person would get David Bowie's home address and we would all write to him and see if we got letters back. And, and I did, actually. Uh, or, you know, one person would walk around school with the first Roxy Music album under their arm because it was like a badge of honour. You, you carried the, the vinyl under your arm to show how hip you were. And so we used to do stuff like that, really, like, you know, not egotistical things, just kind of adolescent things to show how uh, hip we were. Um... And then punk came along, and I was leaving school then, it was 1976, and punk came along, and <clears throat> that was what resonated with me the most, and, uh, you know, definitely made me what I am now, whatever that is. <laughs> Anti-establishment, I guess. And so, I mean, throughout school, do you think you identified it identified with it and got on or were you quite rebellious and, and quite against that and trying to get away from that yeah I wasn't loud I was a quiet rebel but I think they're the best uh, because you never really know what they're up to uh, I think well I mean I, I love really loud people but I, I'm not one of them um, so for me I was quite a, you know I had a few friends uh, and they were the fellow freaks and stuff but I guess, as I say, I chose not to really try and fit in with the herd rather than do that and feel uncomfortable. And I still think that's the best way to be in life, if you feel that's the way you want to be. Mm -hmm. Of course, now I'm 58, I'm, I'm very happy to, uh, you know, I like a lot of mainstream things. But at the same time, I've got a healthy disregard for, um, you know, the establishment and stuff. So... You know, you, as you get older, you change, but maybe you don't change that much. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But yeah, punk, punk definitely. Um, punk at school sorted out the, you know, the men from the boys, so to speak, because a lot of people who liked glam rock and stuff didn't get punk at my school. And I left school pretty much wearing an Anarchy T-shirt, um, which I got from... Vivian Westwood shop and they used to be five pounds the t-shirts which was a lot of money in these days and uh, you know I had I, I changed my appearance completely um, and then I w went to work in a factory um, which packed surgeons gloves which uh, my mum was the boss that's why I went there but that was very odd because you know I was obviously the only punk in the factory <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know it, it made for some interesting um meetings with, the, it was mainly a female workforce, and they knew that my mum was the boss too, so that, you know, you can imagine what that was like. So at that point you didn't really have, like, a a goal or a drive or, a, or really <clears throat> know what you wanted to, to do? I didn't. I mean, I was an academic. I, well, I wish I'd been more of an academic. I, I, I was, um, I read all the time, and I was, you know, reasonably intelligent. Um, but I didn't want to stay at school, and it wasn't just because we were poor although we were, but I was aware that it would be good to get some money. Uh, so I left after fifth year, and, uh, and these days you had to go and ask the rector if you could leave, you know, because they tried to persuade you, maybe they still do, uh, to stay on, and, and I said, no, I'm leaving. Uh, and I just wanted to get away, really, and do my own thing. And obviously, working in a factory, uh, it probably couldn't fulfil me for a long time, but it did for a reasonable time to... Uh, uh, save up some money, you know, buy clothes, go to London, see what that was like. 
And uh, but yeah, at the time it didn't seem like a very stupid move. Although I did get a place at uh, a journalism uh, Napier University as it is now, and I really wanted to be a journalist, and I, I turned it down actually. And I don't know why, but I did. Uh, so, at, at what point did you decide that London was the 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 place to go? Uh, nineteen seventy eight, because I went in. I remember I went in nineteen seventy six, but it was me and my mum and my sister, and we went up the King's Road to try and find Vivian Westwood's shop, which is right. You probably know right at the the wrong end of the King Road, King's Road, and it was called Sex. And my mum stopped a guy in the street and said, "Where can I find Sex?" <laughs> <laughs> And my mum insisted on going in with me, and then, you know, I didn't really think, oh, that's really unhip, I just thought, okay. And there was a very famous shop assistant called Jordan, who uh, is still around and still very well known. She was like the, the fifth sex pistol. And she was washing the, the step, and my mum knocked her over when she went in. <laughs> and it was all these kind of pornographic t-shirts and everything, you know, fuck your mother, and... and Snow White getting fucked by the Seven Dwarves and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was just brilliant. But to go in with your mother wasn't the hippest thing. But, you know, I bought bought clothes then, and then I guess I went back one more time by myself. And then in 1978, I, I was obsessed by Susie and the Banshees. I was a very early adopter from pretty much when I saw the first photo of them uh, in '76. And they were playing uh, Reading and Margate. And I went down by myself and um, went to these gigs and got to know them. Just uh, They had this coterie of mad fans and everyone... There wasn't really a division between bands and fans at that point. And they weren't very big anyway. And then after the Margate show, Susie saw me and, and started talking to me and offered me a lift back to London if I helped with their equipment. Um... And to me, that was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me, you know, to be loading the Banshees equipment and then getting a lift back to London. And then I saw Patti Smith <clears throat> twice that week and pretty much at the end of that week I thought, I'm, I'm never staying in Dundee. And I came back and packed up. So, yeah, it was that week, really very pivotal week. Yeah, and it was just... A bit, do you think it was just pure excitement? There was... Yeah, it was the excitement of... Uh, uh, possibilities which I I didn't feel at the time in Dundee and probably I couldn't blame all all on Dundee although it was quite a restrictive place at that point but you know you're young and you want to leave home um, and London was a very exciting place and you didn't need much money I mean obviously you do now um, so it was a no-brainer really and I, I moved down there I lived in the YMCA in Stockwell <laughs> it was 23 quid for this kind of like a prison cell. Um, but it was great, you know, you were in London, it's like, well, hey. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it may be a bit more intimidating now to make that move. Yeah, I think so, because, I mean, uh, you know, I, I lived in the YMCA at first to get my bearings, and I guess my mum probably insisted on it. But then when I got to know people, um, I lived in squats, and I don't think, um, I don't think squats exist anymore. Or if they do, it's probably a lot harder. Mm-hmm. But in these days, we had like a nine-roomed um, <coughs> squat in Clapham. It was filled with all these very creative people, very intelligent people. Nobody had any money, but 
you know, it was brilliant. We used to take the doors off the hinges to have a, a party, you know, to all eat, eat around this door and then put it back up. <laughs> and uh, somebody who'd lived in all the squats with Boy George and Marilyn and all that crew, crew, they turned on the gas and electricity. So it was really like a proper house, but just with all these mad people in it. Mm. Uh, so you could live like that for very little, really. You know, sign on the door, different time. So at what point do you think you started to see music more as a, a sort of career path or, or an opportunity, if you like? Um, when I lived in that squat in Clapham, and uh, it was ob- we were all music fans, everybody was, but I was the, the worst or the best. And um, somebody who lived in the squat said to me one day, oh, I've, they'd been in prison with um, someone who did music PR. And I was like, what is music PR? And they said, well don't know but you'd be really good at it and I went to see this guy and why do you uh, think they thought you would be good at it I I think it was just because I was always playing music and I always knew about like all the new bands and everything I mean I wasn't atypical all my friends were like that Mm. you know I mean we we used to go to all these places like Nashville and you could see people for 50 pence like the Human League and stuff you know everybody Um, but you know, I happened to be with the right people who knew this guy from being in prison with him, which I love. Uh, and I went to meet him and they took me on uh, unpaid, you know, as a what they call now an intern. Um, so I got my first job when I was living in the squat. And we used to have nine dogs in the basement and you used to have to brave them. They were quite fierce, like Dobermans and everything. And to get to my job, I had to run down the stairs every morning and kind of open the front door and run out. <laughs> and uh, But I had a job, and it was a really uh, big PR company. You know, as I say, I didn't get paid, and they used to let me off every two weeks to go and sign on the dole. But it was amazing, yeah. And is that, do you think that's where you learned your trade then? Yeah, because <clears throat> the first week... I had to ring up Mick Jagger and the boss of the company, who's called Alan Edwards, who was not the person who was in prison, I have to say, uh, um, he used to listen on the phone while I, I rang people up so that he could tell, you know, he's, he's like the consummate PR. And of course, I didn't know what PR was, but my enthusiasm went a long way. And also, I thought the music industry would be full of really hip people, and it wasn't. I mean, I happened to be at the right place at the right time because I was a genuine freak, you know, with no money. All the things that they all kind of mytho- mythologize, but actually they were mainly just quite a lot of careerists and things. Not especially in the company I worked for, but everywhere. So I didn't realize, but actually there was a little niche for me because, you know, I was young and hip and, uh, you know, I, I kind of looked great. Um, Sounds egotistical, but you know, they, they looked very normal. Um, so yeah, I had to ring up Mick Jagger and uh, he Alan listened in and I had to persuade him to do a TV show called Earsay, which was uh, presented by Gary Crowley, I think. But the thing about Mick Jagger was, I didn't like him, Not I didn't dislike him, but I wasn't a fan of the Rolling Stones because of course when you were a punk they were like the enemy. <laughs> And I was, you know, really obsessed by, as I say, Susie and the Sex Pistols and whatever. So actually, I wasn't scared at all. I just picked up the phone and called him. And Jerry Hall answered. And, uh, you know, Mick Jagger came on and I did it. And I persuaded him to do it. 
but I think he probably didn't know what the t- he probably just thought, wow, he's really enthusiastic or whatever. So I came off the phone and Alan said, that was great, you know. And uh, that's how it happened. Just not being scared, because if you don't know something, I didn't even know it was a job. Uh, and in fact, the first week they gave me all these free records. I always remember like a Dead or Alive mega mix and Gregory Isaacs, a real mixture. And I was like, oh, thanks, how much do I owe you? And they went, no, you get them free. You know, you work here. <laughs> and it was funny to think how naive I was, but I just really never thought that could be a job talking about music all day. But it can be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, do you think that that's what you've built a career off? Then? Yeah, I definitely, uh, I don't think it's ideal to analyse yourself that much but but I do Um, yeah I think because of the way it happened and actually being from Dundee and again I I don't think it's right to mythologise a place but I do think that generally people who come from here I can normally tell a Dundonian I mean obviously the accent but also the way that we behave or interact and stuff or sense of humour so I think it gave me this uh, irreverence for the whole thing from an early age so while I was very excited by it genuinely and the music and the the bands and whatever the actual thing I never used to wake up and think oh wow I'm in the music industry Um, it just uh, it just happened Mm -hmm. so where where do you think your expertise lies Um, well it's probably not for me to say but if it what if I think about it, what I like most about it is, and what I want to retain is the the love of the records that we are involved with, um, finding new ones that we can be involved with, uh, and getting on with the artists. <clears throat> My expertise was never fitting in with the music industry, um, although you know I did end up in in a reasonably good job, you know, at EMI Records. But I think that happened by accident. Um, you know, I never really tried. <laughs> I did, and it's, it's not arrogance. It was the opposite. I never really tried. So when the progression happened, I just thought, oh, wow. I mean, now I'm older, I can look back and think to be a maverick then was quite unusual. Um, but at the time, I just thought, mm, you know, great, I'm promoted or whatever. But I think it happened because... I always got on very well with the bands, always. Um, and I think maybe it's because, cause I, you know, I like visual art just as much as music and, and you know, film and whatever. Uh, I've got such an a, a obsession with artistry. <clears throat> you know, really good artists. Like I, and, you know, I said earlier, I, I never think I can't believe it, but I can't believe we work with Kate Bush, for instance. You know, some, some days I think, how did that happen? Because I respect her so much. So I, I think really that was maybe one thing in my favour that I never really worried about the record company or my job. I was more interested in feeling a little bit part of the process of creativity, a very small part. But mm-hmm. Yeah, because like, you must—I mean, you've worked with like an amazing <clears throat> range of, of artists over the years. And they're all, I mean, I imagine they have very different personalities. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, how do you 
how do you ensure that you can relate to all these different types of people um, so well? Well, I, I don't. Um, you know, I've had to pretend a lot. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think we all do in different jobs or day-to-day life. But um, I think when I, I... I think now I'm older, I try and make it that I don't have to pretend because I'm getting more stubborn as I get older. And I, again, I think maybe we all do. I'm more confident in what I don't want to do and what I don't want to be involved in. When I was younger, um, no, I used to put up with some real shit, God. You know, there was a heavy metal band that, uh, you know, when AIDS first uh, appeared, uh, made up to me this fact that they were going to be playing an AIDS benefit and stuff, and it was all made up, and it was just for, for malice, you know. And of course, now I would say, go fuck yourselves, you know. In fact, I think I even wrote about them on Facebook recently. You know, revenge took a long time, but uh, <laughs> so uh, I think I never really. Uh, how do you? Um, I think at the record company, you can't really choose who you work with. I mean, the more uh, the more you go up the ladder, you can, but when you're young, you kind of work with who they give you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was lucky that I nearly had always had really interesting people. I think so. For instance, when. The Petro Boys signed to Parlophone and the head of press at the time, uh, Susie Rome, said to me, oh, you know, you should go f- to lunch with them. You'll probably really like them. And we found out, me and Neil and Chris, that we went to the same really uh, scuzzy, like, cheap clubs, you know, like on a Sunday night in London and stuff. I mean, they didn't have money or anything either. And so, you know, it just happened. You, you kind of related to people. And obviously I loved the music. Um... I think in life sometimes you find the people that you're meant to find or they find you. It sounds very wanky, but I think in my career I've been lucky that's happened a lot. So do you, I mean, do you believe in luck then? I believe in luck and I believe in fate. And you think that's been a a sort of a driver in this career that you've been in the right place at the right time? I don't denigrate the fact that there must be something there with my company that makes people come to us as opposed to another one. Um, But I think if I were to analyse it, talking to you, it would be weird because I'd have to process it all in my head. There was a certain point when uh, when I thought, oh, you know, this is working because I had a really good artist roster. I mean, different points I've had that. I mean, at at one point I had... um, although, of course, some of them have, uh, in public perception have changed now, but I had Petro Boys, Morrissey, and Dusty Springfield, and, I mean, quite a few others, but at the time, they were all, um, you know, because Dusty made a big comeback and stuff, and Morrissey was, you know, I did him from uh, when the Smiths split up. Um, so, you know, there's been certain times when I've looked and thought, wow, this is a, a real big part of my record collection. And it still is. Now I've worked with more and more artists. You know, it's, it's, a lot of it is what I like. Um, so I, I, I do think uh, some of it is luck and some of it is fate, but I think that um, some of it is perseverance, some of it is, um, you know, willfulness, and some of it is like, fuck you. A lot of it is fuck you. <laughs> Because actually, 
I'm quite a quiet person, but really underneath it all, you know, so weird to say it, but, you know, I've got a steely core because you have to, to make something work. Otherwise, you know, you're going to end up not being uh, happy. Mm. So you you were at EMI for, was it 20? I think 20? it was 24 years. I mean, they never, I don't really give gold watches, but I, <laughs> I think I just missed out on 25th year. Um, but, you know, I couldn't hold on any longer. <laughs> <laughs> and you, so over that time, you would have worked your way up in yeah. the company. I got my job at EMI because when I worked in that uh, Alan Edwards uh, PR, which was called, what was it? Really funny name. Oh, modern publicity. And I, obviously I had a stronger Scottish accent then. No one understood me because you had to pick up the phone and go, hello, modern publicity. And they would all go, model publicity or whatever. <laughs> um, so I, I got my job because um, we nicked a band from EMI, or I did. I just found this band that were really good. And, and Alan said, oh, yeah, go for them. And we stole them from EMI. And I had to go to EMI to pick up uh, some records. And I thought they'd be really angry with me because, you know, I'd nicked the band. But instead, they gave me a job. Uh, so, yeah, I got my job at EMI and um, worked my way up. And was that, I mean, you say that you sort of turned up and then got a job. Was that, I mean, was that an attractive proposition to go and work for EMI at that time then? Yeah, because I wanted to have money because I was still living in the squat and obviously I was on the dole. Um, and I used to have a great time. I mean, I don't know how we did it, but we just used to go out all the time and you could bunk the tube. You know, they didn't have barriers and stuff and you could just, I mean, you know, you didn't have to worry about that and we would do terrible things like steal people's drinks when they were on the dance floor and all that. All this stuff just to uh, survive. Um, but that couldn't go on forever. Um, so I got my job at EMI and I don't know how much they offered, but it was a proper salary. And I had my own office and... Uh, the first week, they still, uh, years later, they would talk about it because I genuinely thought they're going to find out I don't know what I'm doing. And I would just l close my office door and then go out for lunch and come back and shut it again and sit there thinking, oh, fuck, another day without being found out. <laughs> and uh, then I just learned on the job. I learned a lot with Pet Shop Boys, you know, because they became big. They were the first new band that I worked on, and um, the first single didn't do well, but obviously West End Girls did, and uh, then they became really, uh, as Neil calls it, you know, the imperial phase where they just everything they did was number one, and uh, and I learned a lot from working with them. So, how many years into that job do you think that you you found yourself and you felt comfortable? <clears throat> Probably not even in terms of years. I mean, because I think. You know, the record companies, although some people bumble along for centuries and, and don't get fired, I think I would have been found out. So I, I, I reckon within the first year, probably, I worked out. I mean, it wasn't rocket science. You know, I realised that, well, they gave you a huge expense account. And the first thing, my first month's expenses, they rejected because I hadn't spent enough. Like, I used to take people, journalists, to this restaurant called um, The Stockpot which was famously like the cheapest place, because we used to go to it, you know, when we squatted, and I just thought, oh, we'll go to the stop. And then the, the people at EMI said, if you don't spend more money, we're all going to get our expenses cut. <laughs> so then that's when I discovered, like, sushi and, you know, uh, like there was a private members club in London and all that, and, you know, I thought, okay, great, I, I'll spend money. Because it meant I could eat as well properly. 
So, um, yeah, I, I quickly realised that um, I could make it work. And I think the idea that also, you know, I, I wasn't an industry person and I liked dressing up, you know, as much as the bands did, probably. So I used to come to work, like, really, you know, it's, it's stupid to keep saying that word, but really freaky. And, and EMI loved it, you know. Because, again, were you the exception to the norm there? Yeah. I mean, they were really nice people and everything, but, you know, at that time, record companies were not a hotbed of um, creatives, really. There were some, but, you know, not many. And at that point, so what's your... What were your responsibilities? What were you actually actually doing? <laughs> well, I was in the most junior position. Um, but as Petro Boys became more successful my standing increased because you know i would travel the world with them and they you know they were they were a top priority for emi and then i did duran duran stuff so quite quickly my my as long as you didn't fuck up which you know thankfully i didn't um it was fine and i learned and then by the time i'd learned you know i, I was so well integrated in it mm -hmm. Um, so it became it's another world now because you know I have a lot of opinions on um, the largesse of expense accounts and all that kind of stuff but when you're young it's great you know it's like free money hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so over that sort of that 20 year 24 year period hmm. what do you think that were the most important things that you learned uh, uh, loyalty to artists and and uh, how to have a relationship with artists that was uh, friendly and because quite often it would be easy to think oh you you are friends and you know I still think that about a couple of them, um, but also that you've got to do a good a really good job. Uh, at the time, the music industry was very buoyant. You know, if you think when CDs first appeared, and there was a lot at risk and. There used to be a, a lot of pressure, which is weird, a different pressure to being a heart surgeon or something. But, you know, there was a lot of pressure to make money. But also there was a lot of uh, free money and a lot of dining out and a lot of getting drunk and, you know, all the excesses of the 80s. And in a way, I'm, I'm very lucky that I entered the music industry in the 80s when there was money because it was a lot of fun, you know. It's not the kind of fun I would like to have now. I'd probably be on the outside, you know poking my nose down at them. Uh, but at the time, I really liked it because I'd come from uh, a situation where I didn't have money. So, you know, it seemed, you know, glamorous is a weird word. Uh, you know, I'd never flown until I got my job at EMI. I'd never been on a plane and I had to take a journalist somewhere and I didn't know how to put a seatbelt on. You know, I literally had to say to them, how does it work? Uh, but, you know, that's just, that's just life. Yeah. And so you must have had some, some favourites over that time. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, a, lot of, a lot of them were transient. You know, maybe some of them only made a few records and then they got dropped and stuff. I mean, I had a lot of fun with a lot of them. The, the, the most lasting ones, I guess, are... Uh, Petrol Boys are probably the ones I've worked with the longest. Mm. Uh, in that that would be over 30 years. It's amazing, really, because also in the music industry, people drop you and dump you, and you know it's quite unusual to have that 
uh, len longevity. And then uh, Yoko Ono uh, would be the other one, who uh, one of her solo albums came on the schedule at Parlophone, and you know they were all sitting around saying, you know, because they didn't see it as a high priority. But I was a big fan, so I was like, I want to work with her. I want to work with her, and um, through that I got to know her very well. And we ended up, I ended up doing the like the John Lennon estate PR and also all Yoko's art stuff and whatever. Uh, so I guess her and Pedro Boys uh, from the EMI years, <clears throat> and then later on, as we went into the nineties and stuff, uh, you know, it was Radiohead who've been amazing to work with and uh, Coldplay when I left uh, I kind of started asking the bands one by one if they would come with me because there had to be a bit of subterfuge so EMI didn't know and uh, I didn't ask Coldplay because for some reason I just thought oh they probably won't want to and then when they said that they would because I already had Radiohead and Yoko and Pet Shop Boys Lily Allen and Kylie so I thought that's great and then Coldplay said it as well. So then I was just like, this is, you know, that's a good start. Yeah. So let's jump back to that sort of decision. So um, EMI, right, they went through a sort of takeover Yeah. Um, at, at one point, And then after that, you sort of made the decision that you were going to go out on your own. Yeah, they were they were bought by um, a company called Terra Firma. And at the time, I mean, there's books being written about it. It was a, a kind of legendary uh, takeover because Terra Firma was and maybe still is owned by someone called Guy Hans, who's a, a venture capitalist. Now, these are all expressions. I don't even know what they mean, but I guess he goes around buying businesses that he thinks are ailing, um, and he definitely thought that about EMI. I mean, he went on record as saying how profligate everyone was and, you know, it was uh, going to be very easy to uh, turn it round. But actually, the music industry was changing a lot. It wasn't just EMI that were at fault or whatever. Everything was changing, you know, downloads and stuff. Um, so he bought it and there was a kind of atmosphere of fear when he did because he wasn't a music person. And EMI was the last uh, British record company. Um, and there was a fear that things would change and of course they did. And I didn't like it. Um, my job, funny enough, wasn't at stake. I mean, I wanted to leave, and I, I asked them to make me redundant because they, <laughs> I would have got a lot of money, but they wouldn't do it. And so I was like, oh, fuck, I've got to come in here and sit with these assholes. Uh, you know, and they really were. Just really no respect for the artists or anything. And then I just thought, I'll leave. Um, you know, I, was, I wasn't young, but I was young enough that I thought I can give it a good go. And as I say, I started going behind their backs and saying to people, would you come with me? And uh, did some figures and thought, yeah, I could make it work, you know. And, uh, yeah. So on the day that you, well, day that you started the company, what, uh, what did that look like? Where did you start it from? Well, I started it in a really grand way because uh, I moved into an office in New Bond Street, um, which is unbelievable. And I still don't know how I... I got it. I mean, I think it was like back to squatting days in that I wasn't paying any rent. Somebody, a friend of a friend, did me a favour. And it was just me in this office in New Bond Street. And uh, I called the company a really wanky name. Uh, I registered it as Infinite PR. 
because <clears throat> Yoko has a song called Approximately Infinite Universe, and I like the idea of infinite. Uh, but in the end, I had to change it because some American guy was going to sue me. Uh, so anyway, it was basically me and uh, one phone and uh, no idea how to run a company and or, you know, VAT and stuff. And then in the first week, Brett Anderson contacted me because I'd been a huge Suede fan. I never worked with them, but I used to follow them around like a real demented fan, you know, like go up to Blackpool and see them and hang out with them, same as the Banshees. And... Uh, Brett said he was making a solo album and would I do the PR for it. So he was like my first new client and he fitted in very well with my idea of what uh, I wanted to do. So then I took Brett on and then it just grew. You know. Now we've got, it's not massive, but we've got 10 people now and you know we've opened up the office here in Scotland as well. But yeah, over the years, it's been 10 years and it grew and obviously there's been some very pivotal signings like um, Noel Gallagher and uh, Kate Bush and Robbie Williams, Muse, a lot of big names. You know. So how does, that, how does that work? How do you get them on board? <clears throat> we, I mean, it's funny now because it's the opposite for me being back in Dundee and that I'm going to have to be out courting people, uh, which I haven't done for a long time. And that's not ego. I was just in the lucky position that they came to us. Um, now in the London office we are going out more um, to, to try and get new business but for the first few years everyone just came to us um, so you know similar stories Kate's, Kate's uh, <clears throat> this guy who works with her just said to me one day in the record company yeah I've got a new artist I want you to look at and I was like okay thinking it would be a brand new artist but it was actually Kate and uh, I spoke to her I remember I was in my house in Bournemouth and she called up and we, I was looking out over the river and I was thinking, this is incredible even to talk to her. And uh, then we started working together. And with, uh, with Noel, you know, I had to go and meet him and see if he liked me. <laughs> so, but I mean, there, genuine, there must be something about you because people don't just come to you by chance. I think that, um, again, it's awkward talking about yourself, but I know that like some of our rivals or uh, uh, competitors, you know, everyone's different and they're quite, I'm quite different to them. I'm not a very, um, I really think we're the best, but okay, I'm well, not loud about it. So why, why, are, you, why are you the best then? Um, well, I think if anyone in business didn't think they were, I mean, this isn't really the answer, but if anyone in business didn't think they were, it would be hard to keep going. Why? I think we're the best because um, of the relationship that we have with the artists. <clears throat> because really, it's never been um, it's never been about the industry for me. It's never been about chasing money. Um, it's been about the artist roster, and you know, there, there's been people over the years who. You know, I've made a mistake in taking on. Maybe I have taken them on, you know, to help their profits and stuff. But not many. And without being too pious about it, there's a purity about it that I really like. You know, and I'm not, um, I don't go to a lot of industry things. You know, I, I don't go to um, award shows and 
that and I don't like the idea of PRs being in one sort of fraternity and uh, <clears throat> you know there's all these things you can go to which I used to really enjoy like you know GQ GQ awards and stuff like that and I just stopped enjoying them uh, tied in quite a lot with spending more time up here actually okay yeah I, I think so I don't think that's what makes us them come to us but I think it's maybe what makes us different um, that I mean PR you know the big cliche of ab fab PR is, is like the larger than life figure and everything and some of them are and some of them are real egomaniacs I mean maybe I'm an egomaniac in a different way a quieter way but some of them are real uh, you know banging the fist on the table types <clears throat> and I'm not like that in, in day to day life or in business life so maybe that comes across I don't know hmm. You've been running the company for 10 years yeah, and you've decided to make the move back to Dundee. Yeah. So what, I mean, why, I suppose, is the, is the first question. And the second one is why, why now? Um, well, I mean, really, I mean, if I think about it, I've had the house here for uh, 13 years, I think, uh, over in Fife. So I've been coming here pretty much every week for 13 years and um, even when I bought the house if there was a way I could have done it then I would have done it but there wasn't the company wasn't big enough we weren't in we didn't have a structure in place or whatever I had to be there all the time uh, but you know it used to break my heart going back on a like a, a Sunday night or something you know you'd, there'd be a really great sunset in, in Fife and you know, you'd be thinking, oh, I'm just starting to make friends again here. and Because, uh, you know, I'd been away a long time. Uh, so it was always in the back of my mind. <clears throat> I've done it now because, um, because I can. Uh, because I have a very great person who works for me in London um, called Sarah Henderson. And um, she's been with me. She was like an intern who came from Fashion College, London College of Fashion. Uh, and she's been with me for a long time and in between then she's she's uh, every time I've been going to promote her she's said oh me and my husband are going to Australia and then she's gone to Australia and I kept her job for her uh, and then she came back from Australia and uh, then recently she's had a baby so obviously she was off for six months but during that time I realized that I wanted to hand a lot of it over to her um, because 10 years is a long time to run something especially in an uh, industry like music you know you've you've got to be pretty tough and resilient because you know a lot of the industry people are, are complete assholes <laughs> you know like or you know people who don't want to pay or, or just you know their egos and whatever and I suddenly thought 10 years is long enough to be just me at the foreground. A lot of people in my position have got business partners or company, you know, people who run it with them. I never did, and now I do. Um, so I've made uh, I've made Sarah MD, and she is going to run it day to day. And we've started a business here. Me and Jenny Patterson, who um, you know most people up here would know, is brilliant PR person. And I was going to open up a business here. And then 
people kept mentioning Jenny to me and I thought what is the point because she and I will be competing with each other albeit I would lose <laughs> uh, so I went to see her one day and when she had an office in the Fleet Collective and uh, I was really nervous because I just thought she's like the queen of Dundee PR and you know she doesn't need anyone but anyway to cut long story short you know I, I said to her I've had this idea and rather than compete would you ever think of working us together and she said she'd emailed me a month before with that idea and <laughs> I'd never got back to her and that, I still didn't haven't seen the email but um, it was like serendipity so we kind of shook hands in fleet and said we were trying to do it um, and now we're gonna so yeah we're, we're getting a new office here and um, we're gonna be a bit gung-ho now about because I needed to be here full-time you know you've got to be out there meeting people and stuff which is what we're gonna do and uh, I think we're feeling quite, um, yeah, gung-ho about it. And so has this been a, has it been an easy transition to sort of, I suppose you're <clears throat> releasing a lot of the control? Yeah, I am. And I'm very happy to do that. Um, but ultimately, because I am a control freak, um, it's still my name. And um, the major decisions I will definitely be involved in. And... A lot of the key artists, I will still be running or, you know, be the active person. Um, it's just either I'll be doing it from here or if I have to go to London, it will be less than I have before. Mm. Um, so for the key artists that I've got the biggest relationships with or, or who demand it or whatever, they probably won't see much change. Um, but in terms of me being in the office kind of... Uh, listening to people's problems and, uh, you, you know, uh, doing the PAYE and all that kind of stuff and uh, going to record company meetings and, and, and whatever, or meetings where, you know, I have to bite my tongue a lot and, and, and stuff. Um, I won't be doing that so much. And, I mean, I imagine that moving up here, that the, the work will be a lot less music-focused. Yeah, I want it to be, because I'm going to, you know, we're, the Lon the big company, the London company, is primarily music, but there are other aspects of it, you know, we do awards, like NME awards and stuff like that, and uh, some brands and, and whatever, but I don't want it to become, I, I, the core has to be music really, because that's what we came from. Sarah might take it in other directions, uh, which is fine, but, you know, the music will be paramount. Up here... It doesn't have to be that way, and I don't want to. We're doing two Dundee uh, musicians, um, but we're doing them because I love them, um, not because I want to. I did want to find Dundee musicians, but I never could. That really appealed to me. And then um, there was a Billy McKenzie tribute night in the reading rooms, and a friend took me to it, and I didn't really know many people at that point. And... Uh, I don't know if you went to it, but it was all these different artists doing Billy's song. And I heard this voice, and I, I couldn't see who it was because there was a pillar in front of me. And it turned out it was um, Andrew Vasilik, um, who, you know, I guess people up here know from Hazy Janes and his solo work. And uh, I, I, I always get obsessed by music that I love. You know, when I really fall for something, I thought, oh, fuck, he's so brilliant. And uh, so we're working with him now. But also in a sort of advisory thing, like he he and I meet up just for coffee in the Perth Road and chat about stuff and unusual venues, whatever. And I think he's incredible, you know. 
I was very excited by that. And then uh, St Martins, who are a duo, and they're amazing too, very young. But the rest of it, they'll probably be the only two music clients. Mm -hmm. And they will actually go through the London company, although I'm up here, if that makes sense, because we want to expose them to, uh, you know, kind of global. And, and so I want everybody in the London office to be talking about them as well as me talking about them. Um, but up here, the, the idea is that we, Jenny and I, would do other projects other than music. We were involved in Dundee's bid to be a European capital of culture, but obviously that, that went. So that was our first, <laughs> first loss of client. But, um, yeah, so we're, we're actively, we've got a lot of ideas now. And I think there's a lot of scope for us. I mean, Jenny's got a good reputation and, you know, we can offer now the fact of 10 people in London working for you as well as us up here. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm hopeful about it. So, I mean, having sort of periodically seen the, the changes in Dundee over the years of you sort of being here and then coming back and going away and coming back, yeah. what's, what's your thoughts on how it has changed? Well, it's great, um, is the very uh, concise thought. I mean, yeah, if you think of the opportunities here now compared to even a couple of years ago, I think the creative community, which, you know, I'm just uh, trying to not actively meet everyone, but you do just meet them when you go out to pubs and stuff. But, you know, I think it's great. I mean, I think, and I, I'm t probably totally wrong, because I'm looking at it as a, someone who's just come back. Because when I, when for 12 years, I wasn't really going out here. I'd just come up at weekends and sit and look at the waves and, you know, go out locally. But I wouldn't go out in Dundee or something. Uh, whereas now I do. Um, I think it's incredible. I think that, you know, it's hard because when you talk about things being incredible, there's always things that aren't incredible. Um, so I, I guess the frustrating things that I think are... Um, I think a lot of good art and creativity can come from poverty of means, for sure. And most of my favourite art comes from that. But... I think it's quite difficult here because I'd like to understand, and uh, you know, it's a very naive question, why there's all these empty buildings, for instance, and they're not being used, you know. And every time I meet somebody in Dundee Council or something, but I never know who they are, you know. I'm like, why don't you let people do pop-ups there and, and stuff like that? And you know, in other cities it happens, so why can't it happen here? And maybe somebody will answer it by saying, well, it has happened and it is happened. You know, I went to the design festival in West Ward Works and that was incredible and an amazing venue. But Andrew and I were looking for venues for him to play that were quite unusual. And I mean, Dundee's littered with them, but how do you get them? You know, and also, if you're a student and you're making great work, you know, I always go to the degree show and like normally buy stuff and everything. How come, like, I've got this idea to do a car, an art car boot sale here, um, which I think would be amazing. And, you know, we can't do it this year because we've just done a pop-up restaurant and that, and that nearly killed me. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, the pop-up restaurant came from the idea that, um, because I was a relative newcomer, even though I'm from here, I was meeting all these really interesting people and I thought everybody knew each other, but they don't, N not necessarily. So, you know... 
I just thought it was it would be a good idea to try and do something where like-minded people could meet. Um, in fact, the first idea me and my friend Helen had um, was to try and do uh, a sort of club, not like not like the Groucho, but the idea was that it could have interest in people in it. But obviously, you need a lot of money for that. So we did a pop-up restaurant, and uh, you know we had fifty. Um, I think really interesting people in the room and going to try and do that again because I do think Dundee lacks something like that like where probably people just go out to their favourite pubs or something and that's of course fine but I would love to think there was a place where you could go and bump into you or bump into Lyle you know what I mean or, or, mm-hmm. uh, and as I say maybe they do exist but I think it could be uh, good to try and structure something a bit more and really um Sorry, this is rambling, but yeah, I think I think Dundee is brilliant, but I think that because it's brilliant, it makes makes people look and think, how could it be more brilliant? Um, and I think the excitement for me is tempered by, you know, what seems to be really crazy planning decisions. I mean, unfathomable, I think, and. You know, I would love to read an article, which presumably somebody must have written, on how these decisions are made, and also who is responsible. You know, I mean, it made <laughs> it's real angry man stuff, but it made my blood boil when Harris Academy was knocked down. Not because it was my school, but it was a really beautiful building, and it's been replaced by a really ugly building. And how could somebody be proud of that? And you know, the big cliche right now is the building going up in front of the V&A. How could somebody think that's a really good idea? Um, and I'd like to understand that. <laughs> but then I suppose it, it often comes down to the finances. Yeah, no, of course it does. But there has to be, if we're talking about creativity, then there has to be a balance between finance and aesthetics, I think. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm certain that that could always be done better. Yeah, but then if it's kind of like, okay, in order to have this amazing spectacle at the waterfront, we're going to have to sell all this land and have six-story buildings or whatever it is in front of that. And but does it have to be that high? For instance, I mean, you know, these are all naive questions. But mm-hmm. does it have to be, or does another new building have to be ugly? <laughs> I mean, that's my definition of ugly. But I don't think many people would look at some of these new buildings and think they're beautiful. I don't think. No, and I mean, it, you just think, well, Dundee now has the UNESCO City of Design. That should be something to be proud of and everything that we produce should be yeah. well-designed Yeah. Um, or well-considered. Um, yeah. I think it's really, I mean, obviously there's a big thing as, as we are talking and there's a, a, a consultation thing tomorrow about the multiplex cinema. And for me, that's got me thinking. And the thing is, I'm very aware that my views could be not wrong, because I'm entitled to them, but, you know, I need to learn a lot more. But the fact is, it's crystallised a lot of uh, thoughts for me, um, which are actually, uh, you know, I like the idea of uh, Patti Smith had a great song, People Have the Power, and, you know, sometimes we forget that. Um, And really, people should be consulted on things, and people not being even, like... uh, uh, creative people or, or you know, in, in some kind of niche, like everybody should feel. And actually the way that you can feel it, I think, is by voting. And, you know, 
for instance, if I found out that some councillor had made decisions about buildings that I didn't like, then I wouldn't vote for them um, because they're voted by us. Um, and, you know, again, it sounds very naive, but I think it'd be interesting to see how that consultation goes tomorrow because mm-hmm. there is a very strong groundswell of opinion. What I don't know is how come there wasn't a groundswell of opinion about that other building, you know, or maybe there was. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, I think I mean, that's part. That's maybe part of the problem that the process is hidden, yeah. and you have to know where to look in order to get involved. Yeah, and I think it's the same in respect to everybody living in their own little bubbles. Yeah, whether that's the bubble of the creative community or a university or or whatever that might be, and it's how do we connect up those bubbles better? Yeah, and I, and and you know, it's not it's not obviously being critical and and. Uh, I think it's more when you go somewhere as a relative newcomer and, you know, I was really excited because I was meeting loads and loads of interesting people. But as I say, um, I thought there could be uh, a place where people could even meet a physical space, you know, mm-hmm. which um, maybe it will happen. I don't know. It doesn't have to be a members club or anything, but just somewhere. Uh, or maybe it exists and I just I'm not invited. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, I, I suppose for me, it's it's events. I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I was at university here, there the just wasn't the same volume of things happening and places to go and meet people. And I think there's regular things that happen now, like say, like Pecha Kucha, yeah, um, and the make sure and all all the other little events that are becoming much more regular. And yeah, um, yeah, people go them go to them as much to to meet and chat to people as they do to like enjoy the the show yeah. and the, the, whatever else is going on yeah um and i think yeah i suppose it's just tapping into that and i think as uh, as the city grows and develops we'll just see more and more of those sort of events and opportunities but yeah i think that um i mean i'm saying all the negatives obviously the positives are, are obvious um there's a sense of dynamism and excitement and you know you can feel it as you walk around which is brilliant um i think that there's very tangible things that probably could help which is I'm always looking to see what I can do, like tonight or tomorrow. And there's nothing, like, if you go on Dundee Council website or something, it's terrible, you know. Uh, so stuff like that must be quite easy to fix, but I guess it all takes money. Yeah, and I think it's having that <coughs> um, sort of considered, curated output and sort of unity throughout the city. Yeah. And to say, OK, I mean... It, if it's yourself, if it's me, if it's a tourist coming for the first time, it's like, is there one place I can go and find out exactly what I should do right now? Yeah. Um, and I d- to be honest, I just don't think there is at the moment. I think it's very sporadic. There isn't, no, and it's, it's frustrating because quite often I do go on the Dundee Council website and you see something that's on in, in like a little gallery in the Duncan of Jordanson and I wouldn't have known about it otherwise, you know. Mm. Um, so stuff like that. I think there there's a lot of assets here, but they're underexploited, and maybe that's charming. But I think there's a fine line between charm and actually things where you could have a lot more people there appreciating them. And I think that it's going to get even better. I th- I love all the small businesses, you know, like the the parlor cafes that have just been going for years when nobody else was doing it, and you know, Gillian Veal's just kept going and going and. Uh, People like that are like have really helped so much. I think. 
Yeah, and I think we should absolutely be championing and encouraging independence. And yeah. So sort of, it'd be great to see more and more of them flourish and sort yeah. of grow that, that side of it. Yeah, independence, I always like. I think it's good. And I think that, you know, this is ultra-naive and idealistic, but, you know, I think in general the people who have got a lot of money <laughs> should help uh, move things forward. And, you know, I'm sure some of them do, but more of them should. Yeah. And certainly with the empty buildings, I think it, it's really annoying when you walk down uh, Reform Street. It's the most beautiful street, but it's not beautiful right now, you know, and, and you think how great it could be. Yeah, I think and it is. I know it, people are thinking of ideas for it, which mm. is great. But Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the go-tos when people talk about this sort of the regeneration of the city. And yeah. it's an example of, of where it's not necessarily happening right now yeah um and it, it, i always find it it's ironically named yeah exactly i think it's really important to be you know to be positive and 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 whatever and there's a lot to be positive about but i don't believe in just being positive to the detriment of thinking everything's great and also ignoring all the poverty here and whatever mm. you know yeah i mean I, I i absolutely don't think we're we can relax and say we're there yet or yeah. even close. I think there's a lot of work that everyone has to do and, and it's getting together and making things happen. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, you know, if there's kind of work that me and Jenny can be involved in um, that, you know, is not going to be music based and everything. It's what interests me as I get older um, in, in doing stuff like that more, mm -hmm. certainly being involved. And I'm sure you're the same, you know, it's a city that everybody loves and, and, you know, we've got to make it even better. I'll ask you one last question, um, which is a question that I've asked quite a lot of people um, on the podcast. Uh, I'm interested to get your take on it. Um, what, what does success mean to you? Pretty much doing what I want. <laughs> Not to the detriment of other people's opinions and stuff but doing what you want I think to me means having a relationship with people artists who you can be completely honest with so you don't have to be obsequious or scared or think I better not say that to them you can have an opinion and say it and they might disregard it or argue with you but to me that's proper freedom and a very good uh, working relationship so it doesn't mean doing what I want in terms of this is what you must do but it means just having the um, uh, the freedom to express your opinion and start a dialogue great and um, so if anyone wants to find you or get in touch um, where would they do that um, they can <laughs> call me up uh, I guess on the website, which is uh, murraychalmers.com or, you know, all, all the usual suspects. <laughs> People can always find each other, can't they? Yeah, just Google it. Yeah. <laughs> they can get my number off you. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thanks very much. Thank you. So thank you to Murray for coming on and doing the podcast. A great story um, of how he went from a boy from Lockheed um, to where he is now and I mean I think it's it's great to see people like Murray um, coming back to the city and I think that's that's one of the great things that hopefully we see more and more in the next few years 
um, with the draw of everything that's happening, that we do encourage talent to come back and we give people the reasons to come back um, and we continue to create exciting events um, and spaces and businesses and, and have a real great feel um, in the city, which I think is building and building. Um, but as we say in the, in the episode, I think we've all got we've all got our part to play and if we continue to work as hard as we are, um, then I don't see why that wouldn't happen. But yeah, um, yeah, thanks again to Murray. And if you don't already, um, the best way to keep up with the podcast is at CCC Dundee. And that's on Twitter and Instagram. It's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. And if you're listening last week, you'll know that this week is episode six of six. Um, I've sort of broken down this year um, into six week blocks, partly to, to sort of save my sanity um, and also partly because there's times of years where um, people just, I mean, round about Christmas, round about summertime, everyone goes on holiday, um, their minds are elsewhere. So it's to kind of give the content and deliver it in the times that people want it. Um, so what we're going to do is take, I think it's a two or three week holiday or break, whatever you want to call it, and I'll come back with another six episodes um, sort of round about uh, end of May time. And then we'll take a, a bigger break after that six, sort of, um, yeah, for going into the summer. So, yeah, a little bit shorter break than the, the last two have been. Um, so thanks for listening. And I will be back in a few weeks with another six brilliant guests. Um, yeah, I'll catch you then. Goodbye.